Good evening. My name is Luke. Most of you have heard of me, but if I could have a brief moment of your time, there are some details of my story I'd like to share with you. Many of you know I'm a doctor, and as a doctor, I appreciate when things are done in an orderly fashion. Things done in order make perfect sense to me. You can say I have a type A personality. Yes, the books by Matthew, Mark, and John are saturated with doctrine and theology, but they're not in order. So when I was given the opportunity to write a book of the Bible, mine was going to be in chronological order. And may I emphasize, it's the only one written that way. I knew all of the details because I was very focused on serving Jesus, being with him, and being a part of his mission. After some time, I met Paul, who was an essential piece of God's plan. I stayed with him. I supported him and remained loyal to him through everything. When he was in prison, I was there. When everyone else deserted him, I never left. You see, this world is chaotic. But the moment I met Jesus, everything came to order for me. He is the greatest man who has ever lived. And it's because of him that I am forever changed. We are so glad you're here tonight, and uh, we're going through the whole Bible, and of course tonight, next couple days, we're going to be going through the Gospel of Luke. Luke was written in an incredibly chronological order, and that's what's so important about this Gospel. If you want to know the order, you want to know how things really went down, you would read the Gospel of Luke. He writes kind of in a chronological order. He's obsessive-compulsive. Any obsessive-compulsive people in the room tonight? How many of you know obsessive compulsive people sitting beside you, but they won't admit that right, right now? That's, that's right. Well, we know this. How we begin something is important, but how we end is absolutely essential. I don't know how your life began. I hope you had a great beginning. I hope you had great parents. I hope you had great family backgrounds. But some of you in the room didn't. Some of you didn't have a great beginning to life. Middle school wasn't great. High school was a disaster. Young adult was a train wreck. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. How you finish is what's absolutely essential. And this gospel, this gospel starts well, but it ends absolutely awesome. The gospel starts off with basically the parents of John the Baptist, 400 years of silence. God had not spoken for over 400 years. And now God is going to start up the whole thing again. Get ready. It's back on. From Malachi to John the Baptist, it was 400 years of silence. And so Luke wants us to know about Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. But the story then ends 23 and a half chapters later in chapter 24. The story ends with this incredible story that only Luke tells. Now, I don't know why, but I don't know a lot of things about the Bible. Do you? I mean, some things I don't always understand. And so there's probably lots of stories that were told that maybe didn't get written down. And all throughout heaven, we'll be talking about those. But about midway through the 24th chapter of Luke, Jesus, on that Sunday that he rose from the dead, maybe early afternoon, maybe mid-afternoon, he just joins two guys as they're walking on a seven-mile journey. 
These two guys are walking and they're disciples. They're not some of the 12. They're disciples in a broader sense. And Jesus just joins them in their walk and he joins their conversation. And Jesus says to them, he says, what things are you all discussing? And the Bible says they stood still. Like, are you crazy? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's just taken place? It'd be like you visiting Brussels today. And you say, why all the police raids? Why all the pandemonium? Why is everybody so nervous? Somebody from Brussels would say, are you like the village idiot? Where have you been, right? And so Jesus says, what things? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, but the chief priests handed him over, and they sentenced him to die, and they crucified him. We had hopes that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. And by the way, it's been three days, and some of our ladies went to the tomb this morning, and they couldn't find his body. In addition to that, they said a whole vision of angels revealed to them that Jesus had risen from the dead. So some of our guys then went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said. There was an empty tomb, but they did not see the body of Jesus. And at this point in the story, Jesus says to them, O oh, slow of heart, and how long will it take you to believe what was written about the Messiah in the prophets. And the scriptures say, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he began to explain to them how the Messiah would suffer, and after that he would receive his glory. And the Bible says he began to open the scriptures to them. And then a few verses later, when Jesus finally reveals himself to these two disciples, they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us? as he opened the scriptures and he explained to us the things that would take place. And that's what I want to do for just a couple minutes tonight. I want to talk about that Thursday and that Thursday night and that Friday and the events that took place. Sunday's coming. We'll get to Sunday on, on Sunday. But tonight we're going to go back to Luke chapter 22 and 23 and look at the events on that Thursday. We start with what's called the Passover one of three main Jewish festivals. And the Passover was really on April the 14th, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread was for seven days, the 15th through the 21st. But it all kind of gets mixed together here, but, but you'll understand what he's trying to say. Luke chapter 22. It was the Festival of Unleavened Bread called the Passover. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, they were looking for a way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas' heart, and Judas went straight to the high priests and the officials of the temple guard, and he discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted, and they agreed to give him money. He consented, and he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then we have the story, again, Luke writes in a chronological order, we have the story now of what's called the Last Supper. And we partake of communion every Sunday here at Harborside. And a lot of what we do on a Sunday morning, we even get from the truth out of the Last Supper. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. This would be the day before the Passover. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? He replied, as soon as you enter the city... 
a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and they found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. Now, you've seen pictures, kind of like your dining room table, where they're all on chairs. Probably didn't happen that way. They're probably on one elbow, leaning down, reclining at the table. And Jesus said, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now here's another cup. In the same way, after supper, he took another cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with my hand on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves, Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? A dispute then arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Now, I think this is hilarious because he's telling the story in chronological order. And I like the fact that Luke adds the story here where it took place about, okay, Jesus is going to die. Jesus is going to be betrayed. Somebody's going to betray him around the table. And by the way, can I be the greatest? Can I be one of the ones, you know, at your right hand and your left hand? I love this story. Because you would think by this point in the story, they would be a little further along in their spiritual maturity. But doesn't that give you and I some hope? There are moments when I say to myself, I should be beyond this. I should be ahead of this. How come I still struggle? I'm still at mile marker 7. By now, after all these years, at least I should be at mile marker 10. And so I, I take comfort in this, that like you and like me, like the disciples, they're still struggling. They're still trying to get it all together. Jesus said, look, guys, let's not argue about this. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call them benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you will be like the one who's the youngest. And the one who rules will be like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me. And he's conferred the kingdom on you and me. Infallible as we are, still far back from where we think we could be or should be after all these years in Christ, he has given you and me the task of loving people. He's given you and me the task of sharing the good news. He's given you and me the task of inviting our friends and our families and our neighbors. Infallible as we all are, struggling with our own sins, He's given us, he's conferred this upon you and upon me. Well, about that time, Simon Peter decides to open his mouth. We can all take comfort in Simon Peter. He speaks without filters and just like you and I I do the same. Simon, Simon, 
Satan is asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. In other words, Simon, when you backslide, not if, when, when you make mistakes. You see, I'm speaking tonight to the holy huddle. These are the believers. This is the family of God. You're here tonight because you want to be here. You're here tonight not out of duty. You're here tonight not out of obligation. Nobody guilted you into coming tonight. You're here because you love Jesus. You're here tonight because you want to honor him. And yet you know that even though imperfect as you are, you strengthen us. And I strengthen you. And we strengthen each other even though we, we fall. Simon, I've prayed for your faith. Oh, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and to death. Jesus said, well, Peter, let me tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you even know me. Then Jesus said, when I, here's a whole different section right now. Only in Luke do we find this. Remember in other gospels, Jesus said, I send you out without purse. I send you out without this. I send you out without this because I'm going to take care of you. This is just the exact opposite. Jesus tells something just exactly the opposite in the Gospel of Luke. Why? He said to them, but now, well, let me go back. I'm excited to teach this. He said, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? They answered, no, because he took care of them. He said, but now... If you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with her transgression. Now, why is Jesus telling them now to get a purse, to get a cloak, and to get a sword? The disciples said, yes, Lord, there are two swords. And Jesus said, well, that's enough. That's hilarious. Two swords against the entire Roman army coming to arrest him. So what is Jesus trying to teach us here? Here's an example where we see divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Jesus is now going to leave them. I want you to take care of yourself. I want you to handle money well. I want you to provide for your family. I want you to protect for yourself. And this is a classic example where divine sovereignty and human responsibility, they intersect into each other. Jesus then went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And on reaching that place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. That's a pretty good prayer, isn't it? How many of you have prayed that prayer? I pray that about hourly, at least I should. He withdrew about a stone's throw behind them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Jesus was afraid. He didn't live fearful, but Jesus was afraid. But yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him, and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them sleeping, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so you will not fall into temptation. Then we have the arrest. The next story is the arrest where Judas betrays. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, And the man was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? 
And when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? I think that's hilarious. Here's the whole massive Roman army. We got two little bitties. Okay, never mind. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus insisted, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed them. Now, wouldn't you think at least one Roman soldier would have gone, you know what? That ear was cut off. The ear was in the mud. This guy supernaturally picked the ear up, put it back on the guy's ear, and he can hear. I mean, they're dumber than a box of rocks, these Roman soldiers. At least one of them should have crossed over, I think. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officials of the temple guard and the elders who'd come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come to me with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. There is a time when darkness reigns, but there is also a time when light comes and it's irrevocable. I love that little verse. Then seizing him, they led him away, and they took him into the house of the high priest. Peter follows at a distance. And when some of them had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl, maybe it's a middle school girl, a servant girl saw him seated in the firelight. She looked closely at him and she said, this this man was, was with them, but he denied it. I don't know. I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also were with one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, Another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And how'd they know that? Because of his accent. Peter replied, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned, and he looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the words of the Lord, that before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. The guards, they mocked Jesus. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him, demanding, prophesy, who hit you? Prophesy, tell us who hit you. And they began to spit on Jesus. Now, I don't know this, but I can only picture that when these soldiers began to spit on Jesus, and the spittle was running from the top of his forehead, onto his beard, off of his chin, I can only imagine Gabriel and Michael saying to the host of heaven, just let us go, give us five minutes. All we need is five minutes. And I believe, I don't know this, but I believe the father had to put out his long arms and say to Gabriel and Michael, stand down, stand down, and hold the host of heaven himself had to keep the angels in check. I know all I needed was about five seconds if I was Michael or Gabriel. What an incredible act of meekness from our, our, our great Heavenly Father. The story continues. It's an illegal trial. It's an illegal trial all Thursday night into the wee hours of the morning. Now we're at daybreak. The council, the elders and the people, both chief priests and teachers of the law met together, and Jesus was led before them. Jesus has been on trial all night long. He's gone from Herod to Annas to Caiaphas, back to Pilate, back to Herod, back to Pilate, all day and all night long. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you would not believe me. And if I ask you something, you would not answer me. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all ask him, are you then the Son of God? 
And he replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his whole lips. Then the whole assembly arose and led him off to Pilate. Why Pilate? Pilate's the Roman governor. Why the Romans? Because the Jews couldn't kill anybody. And they wanted Jesus killed, and so they had to get Rome involved because Rome could have him executed. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be a Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd who were Jews, I find no basis for a fault against this man. But they insisted, no, 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 you don't understand. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked the man if he was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, Herod was the king of the Jews, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time, Herod had been wanting to see Jesus. He'd wanted to to see a sign and hope that he would perform some type of a miracle. He plied Jesus with many questions, but Jesus gave Herod no answers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing Jesus. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressed him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. Pilate called together the Jewish chief priests and the rulers and the people. He said, you brought me this man who was inciting the people to a rebellion. I've examined him in your presence, and I have found no basis for a charge against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But the crowd then began to shout. And now there's a mob, and now there's a riot. And the crowd began to shout, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Do you remember Barabbas? Barabbas was a guy who was a murderer. Barabbas was an insurrectionist against the government. Release Barabbas. With loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. And so Pilate decided to grant them their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and he surrendered Jesus to their will. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country, and they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed. And Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when the people will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and the hills cover us. Why? Because in AD 70, the great temple would be destroyed, and over one million Jewish people were massacred in just a few years as Jesus made this prediction. For the people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Tom, during offering, referred to the two thieves, to the two criminals that were crucified on both sides. That's the next section. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, 
and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him come down from the cross and save himself. The soldiers also came up and they mocked him and they offered him wine vinegar. And they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which reads, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there, he hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. Save us. But the other criminal, he rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since we're under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting exactly what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I love that story. Jesus has nails through his hands, nails through his feet. He's stripped naked. He's been spit upon. He has a crown of thorns rammed on his head. Blood is pouring all over him. And he came to fulfill a mission. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but he came to seek and save those that were lost. On the cross, the last act that Jesus did was he saved a man from eternal hell and from eternal damnation. And Jesus said, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus is on the cross for a total of six hours. 9 a.m., he was nailed to the cross, and from 9 a.m. to 12 noon, normal daylight. But from noon to 3, the last three hours, there was darkness. It was now noon, and darkness came over the whole land until 3 in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God, saying, Surely this was a righteous man. The centurion is a professional executioner. The centurion had seen hundreds and hundreds of men executed. He says, surely this man was a righteous man. When all the people who gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who'd followed him from Galilee, stood there watching at a distance. There was a man named Joseph of Arimathea who had not consented to their decisions and to their actions. He himself was waiting for the kingdom of God to be restored. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one in which no one had ever laid. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who'd come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph, and they saw the tomb and how the body was laid in it. Then they went home, and they prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. That was Friday. Sunday's coming. And when Sunday came, nothing could hold him back. Nobody could make the tomb secure. On that Sunday morning, God raised his son from the dead. And we're going to celebrate that on Sunday, big dog, big time, for a long time on Sunday. Four, four different services. But what we're doing tonight, tonight's different. Tonight we're remembering what took place on the cross. 
Tonight we're remembering that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A fulfillment of Psalm 22. Why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because Jesus knew that his whole purpose was to give his blood in exchange for you and for me. We learn in the Old Testament that the blood of goats and bulls and turtle doves and pigeons could not bring about the remission of sins. It just appeased God's anger. It just gave you a clean sheet of paper for the day. Remember the story with Moses? The people had sinned greatly and God was angry and Moses said, well, take me, take my blood. And God said, Mo, your blood's not good enough. Your blood's not nearly good enough. And so Jesus Christ lived 33 years sinless. And on the cross, all of your sins, all of my sins, all the sins of humankind were heaped upon his heart. And I think Jesus died of a broken heart. He had never felt sin. He'd never smelled sin. He'd never had sin inside of him. And when the sins of the world were heaped upon him, he cried out, God! And God looks away because God knew that he could not deal with sin either. God had to allow Jesus to do what he needed to do. And so Jesus' blood became a sin offering. He died in my place. He died in your place. So here we are tonight, the family of God. And the foot is level, the, 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 it's level at the foot of the cross. And we're all in because we've accepted Jesus' sacrifice. None of us are in because of our good deeds. None of us are in because we're smart. None of us are in because we've done righteous acts. We're all in the kingdom of God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And Max Lucado said it better than anybody. Max Lucado said, God's grace is too good to be true, but it's too great to pass up. And we've received it, and we've accepted it. And so tonight, we're going to celebrate by singing another song in just a second. Then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to honor His body, and we're going to honor His blood that was spilt and given for us. And we're going to continue to worship Him tonight. And we're going to be grateful, grateful, grateful for what Jesus did for us. And then on Sunday, we're going to celebrate the greatest event in all of history. Oh, Father, we come before you tonight because you are a good, good Father. And you have demonstrated your love toward us by sending your Son, Jesus, toward us. And while we were yet sinners and enemies, you sent Jesus to die in our place. And Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we worship you tonight. We are so grateful. And we want to honor you because you are a really good, good father. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. 